Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called People of Hope, a study in 1 Thessalonians. In this series, we will see that even in trials, the way of Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it was a little over two years ago. Uh, I was born with a genetic kidney disease, and the time came when I needed a kidney transplant. And uh, somebody in our church family, Matt Cremens, was willing to donate that. And literally, I was given new life. I was given a new life. Now, I want you to know that since that time, I've completely trashed that kidney. I've decided to take up boxing. Uh, I've become a chain smoker. And I'm also at the point where I just don't want to take the medications anymore that keep it from rejecting. So that's just where I am with this incredible gift that I was given by Matt. Now, of course, I hope you know I'm not being serious here, but I want you to keep that idea in mind as we continue the series we've been doing in the first letter to Thessalonians, a series we've called A People of Hope. If you haven't been with us, here's what the big idea of this series is. If you're following along on your notes, we're learning that even in trials, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Paul's writing to a church going through tremendous persecution and suffering, and yet they are a people of hope. And in the same way, we still can be people of hope today, no matter what it is we face. And so as we continue this, let me just invite you, if you haven't already, take your Bible, if you brought it with you, turn it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your own Bible, we have some available in the seat underneath there. You can find this on page 957 of those black Bibles. Now, if you were here last week or you watched online, Brian did a great job showing how right in the middle of this letter, Paul sort of just pauses and he prays over the Thessalonian church. And really, this marks a turning point in this letter. We looked at the three prayers he prays, but just for a little context, if you want to look at it in your Bible, it's up on the screen here. Here is the last prayer that Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. He says, may he, God, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Notice the prayer here is that they would be holy and blameless. And it's out of that that Paul transitions into the second part of this letter. This is something Paul does all the time in the letters he writes. He'll spend the first half of his letter sort of talking about theology or about here's who we are now in Christ. Here's what the gospel is. And then there's always this transition about halfway through the letter where he starts to talk about, and here's what that means for your life. If you're following on your notes, here's the big idea, right? Who we are always changes how we live. We've been given a new life in Christ, just like I was given a new kidney. And how that happens, what happens there is gonna change the way that we actually live. And so let's pick this idea up starting in verse one together. If you have your Bible, Paul starts off by saying, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. I just pause right there real quick. Whose authority is this under? Is this under Paul's? Is this under mine? No, this is under the authority of the Lord Jesus. 
What Paul is saying here is that as God's people, as people who have been redeemed, who have been rescued, who have been adopted by God, our response out of that is going to live us a life that is pleasing to God. We're going to want to be grateful for what God has done us, and so we live in lives that are worthy of that. In a similar way, you would say to me, that's disgusting that you're treating your kidney this way, this gift. Of course not. You would live out of gratitude. You would want to take care of that. And in the same way, when Paul talks about the Christian life, he says, listen, you've been given a new life in Christ. That's going to change the way that you live and treat your life. To put it in terms he uses in verse 1 here, we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, I know the translation I use has the word live. It's not as good as the word walk. Paul uses this metaphor of the Christian life being this walk 32 times throughout his letters. And it's this big idea that as we travel through life as followers of Jesus, we are to walk in a certain way. Now, the question becomes, well, what way? How do we know which is the right path, which is the right way to walk? I mean, look around today. Many people determine their path based on their family of origin or the way they grew up. You can't help but look at our world today and just decide, I'm going to walk according to whatever my culture says is right. This is where we live right now. My big question about that always is, though, how do we know which culture is right? I mean, what's to say our culture is the right culture on all these issues we're seeing today? What's to say we're better than the African culture or the Latin American culture? How do we possibly know what path is the right path to walk on? And if you're following on your notes, here it is. As Christians, we're called to walk in the way of God's word. In other words, as we journey through this life, we seek to live out our new identity in Christ. And as we're doing that, as we're walking, as we're journeying, we're constantly asking ourselves the question, what does God's word say about this? The Bible, we've been told, is an anchor for us. So no matter what culture is saying, no matter what culture you live in, we're told the word of God is to be an anchor in this generation and every generation. No doubt today the authority of God's word is under attack. But that's nothing new, right? Even in the early church, read the letter to 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church was basically saying, thank you, Jesus, for this remarkable gift of new life you've given me. This now means I can live however I want. And they sure did. They lived with what's called license, right? They just said, grace is cheap, grace is free. I can do whatever I want with it now. I can destroy my life like I was talking about with my kidney. But that's not an understanding of grace. Grace does not say what we now do does not matter. Wherever grace exists, there's always gonna be people who abuse it and take it as a license for sin. But if you're following again, rightly understood, grace compels holiness and obedience. Grace teaches us that God's way is the better way, the fuller way, the richer way. It's better than any other path we could travel. Therefore, we are going to anchor ourselves in God's word because it is trustworthy. But not only that, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. My biggest burden as a pastor, as a preacher, is try to convince people that this is actually the best path that God's word really is the life that leads to fulfillment. Obedience is the best and most fulfilling life. All other paths we choose will lead to unfulfillment or hurt or sabotage or anger or frustration or what Solomon called meaninglessness. 
I really believe this is going to come throughout this message today. The second most important question you must answer when it comes to Jesus. First, of course, is what am I going to do with him? Am I going to follow him? Am I going to believe in him? Am I going to trust that what he did on the cross for me was for the forgiveness of my sins once and for all? Second most important question you need to answer is, do I believe his way is really the best way? Do I really believe God has my best interest in mind when I read the word that it's not just for some distant culture, but it's for us right here and right now, and he wants us to thrive. And that's why he gives us these words. I am reading a book right now, and I really brought this idea home. You can read this quote up on the screen. The writer says, it is always to our advantage to conform to his will because it leads to our highest good. Obedience to God produces joy and fulfillment. Disobedience produces sorrow and frustration. There is greater pain in disobedience than in faithfulness. Everything God asks for us is for our good. Everything he asks us to avoid is harmful. Now, I'll just tell the truth on myself here. I don't always believe this. You know how I know that? Because I still sin. I still disobey. Maybe once every five years or so, it happens. But you get the idea, right? Do I really believe at my core that God's way, his path, his word is the best possible way, the best possible life? I'll tell you from Genesis to Revelation, if you're following on your notes, a life of obedience is the only path to the abundant life. Where are you on that? Because as we head into this next section, this is gonna be an crucial question. Now, what's cool here in our book, 1 Thessalonians, is unlike the Corinthian church, Paul isn't scolding them. You read in verses 1 and 2, he's happy with them. Timothy brought back a great report about their faith, and he's saying, good job, keep going, keep walking in this manner. But in the following verses, he raises two things that could potentially derail them in their journey, in their walk with Christ. We're going to look at the first one today, and we'll pick up the second one next week. But before I read this verse, before we dig into it, I just want to say something really cool about what we're about to read. Every single person has asked at one time in their life, what is God's will for me? Or if you don't know God, you might say, what is the meaning of life? And right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul tells us what God's will is for every one of us, especially those of us who follow Jesus. So I'd like to invite you to read the first part of verse 3 out loud with me on your notes. Don't read the second line. We're just reading the top line for now. It says this. Let's go. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. There it is. Let's pause. What's God's will for my life? What does God want for me? Paul tells us right here, right now, God's will is for you to be sanctified. That is the meaning of life. Now, if that's the meaning of life, if that's God's will, I want to know exactly what that word means. And so the Greek word Paul uses here is hagiosmos. And in his theology, this means becoming more and more holy as we live out our lives. Let me put this in a more translatable language. If you're on your notes, God's will for you and me is to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. What's God's will for me? It's to be transformed more and more into the person of Jesus, to be set apart as holy like Jesus in the Christian faith. Please hear me. God's will is not that you just learn the right information about who Jesus is. 
so that you can then pray that in a prayer at a certain time in your life. James tells us even the demons know the right stuff about Jesus. No, God's will is actually doing what pleases him. And where do we find out what pleases God? God's word. I'm going to take a little theological time out right here because I think this is so important for us to understand. What we're really getting into is this idea of salvation. We talk about salvation. It's one of those churchy words, but let's just break down this idea of salvation real quick. I'm going to put up a slide here. Salvation really is broken down into three parts in the scripture. It's a past event. It's a present reality, and it's also going to be a future reality. The words that theologians use for this, you can sound really smart at lunch today if you throw some of these out. The past event that takes place in our salvation, that moment when you trust Christ is called justification. And we're told in the Bible, at that moment, you are declared not guilty. You stand before God as clean and forgiven We're told at the end of this world, we've been reading a lot about this in Thessalonians, there's going to be a day when we are glorified. It's called our glorification. We will be made perfect. We will stand in Jesus' presence as he brings down a new heaven and a new earth. But right in between those two things are this idea of sanctification. This is the process that we are all going through, becoming more and more like Jesus salvation, then understand it's a past event. It's a present reality. And it's something that we look forward to in the future. And I'm saying all this because I just want to make this clear. Sanctification is not some add-on to our salvation. Sometimes we separate it out. Yeah, I believed in Christ. That's it. I'm good to go. This is what the Corinthian church was saying. Absolutely not. Part of our salvation is becoming more and more set apart and more holy or more and more like Jesus. This means salvation is going to have concrete, practical, visible effects on our moral lives, on our social lives, on the way we use our time, the way we use our energy, the way we steward everything that God has given us. Now, the good news is, and I I know a lot of people live a lot of pressure under here, we don't do this through our own willpower. Do you need to hear that? You can't do it on your own willpower. You'll fail. But we're told later in 2 Thessalonians that God has provided his Holy Spirit in every believer. Every person who's trusted Christ is given the Holy Spirit at that moment. And he is going to help us become more like Jesus. But the truth is, we can quench the Spirit. We can take the gift that God has given us. Like I could take that kidney that Matt gave me and I can quench it. I can trash it. I can walk away from that gift. I can choose not to live the life that God has called me to give. But for those of us who truly understand the gift that Jesus has given us, we will want to walk in the spirit, following the word of God, trusting that that is the best fulfilling life. Amen? So let's get back to our text. What does Paul tell them here that they need to be sanctified in? Let's read verse three again, the whole thing. This time, read both lines. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So what's one area of sanctification? This isn't the end all be all, but what's one area of sanctification that's supposed to take hold in the life of a follower of Jesus? Sex. And Paul focuses specifically here on the issue of sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? I mean, that's pretty vague, right? 
What might be sexual immorality for you may not be sexual immorality for me, especially in a culture like ours today where we've done everything possible we can to get rid of right and wrong. Who's to say? Who are you to say what's moral and what's immoral? I mean, beyond that, one of the arguments you're going to hear over and over again today is, weren't these words written for a different time and a different culture? These are words that are no longer applicable to our time and our day today. They're actually a little bit intolerant, to be honest. I just want to offer a little context before we dig into this idea. I dare you to go study the Greco-Roman world and its sexuality during this time. I just dare you to do it. You will blush. We would be embarrassed by some of the things that we're taking part in this day and age. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Back then, marriage, especially for Greek and Roman men, was simply a business transaction. They would get married, and then they would have children with their wife, but they also had concubines and mistresses. And that was just expected. That was just a a natural thing for the men back then. Living several centuries before Paul's time period, a man named Demosthenes explained the situation this way. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. This is what it was like to be a woman in this Culture, adultery was just expected of the men during this time. Not only that, I'll give you another example. Did you know that every city had a temple dedicated to the goddess of Aphrodite, the goddess of love? And do you know how you worshiped Aphrodite? You went there and you paid for a prostitute. That was just normal worship. I mean, that's what they consider to be worship in this time. You go by a prostitute and you're worshiping the goddess Aphrodite. These are just two tiny examples of the sexual culture back then. So I just don't want to hear anymore like, wow, that's for a different time. Friends, I'm telling you, it's for every time. And it's in this context, Paul is writing to these brand new Gentile Christians who just came out of that culture and saying, listen, it's God's will for you to avoid sexual immorality. That's part of of what sanctification looks like. Would anybody argue that we live in a sexually obsessed culture today? Everywhere. Turn on the TV, commercials. I bemoan the fact that we try to look for a show for our family to watch, and I go to Netflix. Every show nowadays is TVMA. (laughs) Like, what is the deal right now? We're obsessed with this. Go to the grocery store. Look at the magazines. Go to the movies. On and on and on. You can't even surf the internet anymore without clickbait going right for you, saying, click on here. The 20 most beautiful women in the world. We cannot escape it. Our culture is obsessed with sex. And I don't want to hear that this was an issue for a different time. It's right in our face today. It's a human issue. And it's as relevant today as it was for them. And yet one more thing I'm going to unpack before we break down this text. Who is Paul writing to here? You can say it. The church. He's writing to people in the church. It would be good for us to remember this when we discuss these kind of issues, right? Paul's concern was for the conduct of those who say, yes, I've received the gift of God in my life. Therefore, I want to be sanctified. Remember what he tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or the idolaters. I love this. In that case, 
you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Paul's concern is what's happening in the church. He doesn't address how the world behaves, which is all we want to address today. We love addressing how the world is behaving, but what else should we expect from people who don't know Christ and don't have the Holy Spirit living in them and guiding them? His words here are to the church. He says, I don't want you to live like that. I want you to be sanctified, set apart as God's holy people. That was a long detour. Back to our text. What's God's will for you? To be, say it, sanctified. And in one particular area, it means we are to be sanctified, set apart when it comes to sexual immorality. So let me break this down for you. There is no doubt about God's will in our lives when it comes to this. You don't have to pray about whether you should have sex before marriage. You don't need to conduct an in-depth study of the scriptures to discover whether an affair is okay or not. We don't need to ponder whether God might not, in fact, rubber stamp our indulgence in the latest internet pornography as a, quote, stress release. The answer is clear and concise in scripture. This is the will of God for us, followers of Jesus. Avoid sexual immorality. Abstain from it as God's people. You've been given a new life. Live out of gratitude in that. Be grateful for the life you've been given sanctify yourself, set yourself apart. This is God's will for us. Now, the word sexual immorality, it's everywhere in scripture. It comes from the Greek word porneia. I bet you can guess what English word we get from that. Now, let me just define this for you as clearly and concisely as I possibly can. I don't understand why there's so much confusion about this anymore today. If you're following on your notes, it simply means any sort of sexual activity outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman, period. This is God's will for every follower of Jesus in the area of sex. No doubt as Christians, this understanding of sex and sexuality is going to make us different from the world around us. But that's literally what sanctification means. We are set apart. Paul's actually going to mention again in the next verse, we don't live like the rest of the world because we've been given this incredible gift. And if you're following on your notes, sexual immorality, or excuse me, sexual purity can set us apart in the world today. Again, this is the same thing in the history of the church. The great historian Rodney Stark wrote a preeminent book about why the church exploded in growth in the first two centuries. And he breaks it down into two reasons. The church at that time was incredibly generous. They took care of people that nobody else wanted to take care of. And because of their radical sexual purity. Just think about that. Christianity rose and grew in a time of sexual immorality and license. And one of the primary things that made Christians stick out was their sexual purity. People could not understand it. They did not like it. They made fun of them for it. Does this sound at all familiar today? And yet the church grew. 
It exploded in growth, especially it grew in women. It was so attractive to women who were treated as objects and property more than people, as we just saw there. I mean, can you imagine some of Paul's words to husbands in relation to what I was telling you? Husbands, be pure with one wife. What? What about Aphrodite? What about my concubine and my mistress and all these things? Women would come to church and say, you're God's treasured possession. Marriage was God's idea, and this is how it's supposed to look. These words aren't popular today, but it comes back again and again to this one simple question. I asked it before. I'm going to ask it again. Do you trust that the path of Jesus leads to the abundant life? Paul goes on to explain how avoiding sexual immorality actually looks in verses four through five. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. What he says is there's this old thing we used to talk about called self-control. As those who are set apart as holy, learn to control your body. Now, again, I wish I had more time today. I could do four messages on this. But right now today, the thing that's being attacked the most is our body. What has happened in sociology and philosophy is there's become this big disconnect between our physical body and what they would call our personhood. I am not my body, right? I'm not my body. I'm a person. I'm a mind. I'm a, this body is just a vessel that contains who I really am. The problem with that is from the beginning until the end, there's no disembodiment in the Christian faith. Nancy Searcy, if you want an interesting book to read, it's called Love Thy Body. She writes that Christianity holds that body and soul together form an integrated unity that the human being, listen, is an embodied soul. So in other words, our bodies are a part of who we are. If you listen carefully to the rhetoric today, that is the exact opposite of what's being taught. But this is confirmed throughout the Bible, including by Jesus himself. Most notably, Paul goes so far as to say for the Christian, if you're following on your notes there, let's read 1 Corinthians 6 out loud. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Woo. This is similar to what he'll write in our text in verse 8. If you have your Bible there, look at it. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. If you're following on your notes, our bodies matter because God's spirit resides in them. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you bear the person of the Holy Spirit in your body. Not only did God create bodies and call them good, not only did he put laws in place to help protect our bodies and the bodies of others, not only are we gonna be given new bodies one day similar to the bodies that Jesus, the body Jesus now has, we are told that the moment we receive Christ into our life, justification, we now bear the Holy Spirit in our bodies. Imagine if we actually lived like we believe that, especially in this area of sexuality. You're telling me then whatever I watch, Jesus is watching it with me. 
Whatever I look at on the internet, Jesus is right there with me. Whatever I read, however I look at that man or however I look at that woman, Jesus is right there with me. This should have a profound effect on the way we live. Paul tells these Christians living in a central city of the Roman Empire, catering to sexual immorality, discipline your bodies in the area of sexuality. Don't live like the world around you who don't know God. You've been set apart by God. You have the very spirit of God in you. Again, I'll go back to that example with my kidney. You've been given a new life. Set apart that life as holy to God. I want to be clear here because I, I get tired of talking about this stuff. Negative, negative, negative. This is one of the ways that the church has gotten so wrong. I think sexual immorality is wrong, because sex, not because sexual activity is wrong in and of itself. Let's be 100% clear here. Let's teach our kids here. Sex is a good gift that God created. Amen? I'm talking about a text. This is the text we have today. Sex is a gift that God has given us in a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. The problem is, like every good gift God gives us, it can become an ultimate thing for us. And sex has become worshipped. We're told we can't live without sex today. That is what is called an idol. And if we run after that, We're saying, I don't believe the path of Jesus is the right path. I believe this is the path to fulfillment. But Paul continues and says, listen, if that's what you choose, there's two consequences that are going to take place. Look at what he says in verse 6. And in this matter of sexual immorality, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. You could also translate like a saying, there's going to be harm done if you pursue this within the church Then he says, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Two consequences. I find this fascinating. The first one is that Paul says it's going to hurt other people. Now, we don't believe this today in our individualistic American society where hookup culture simply means it doesn't matter. We're just two bodies. But what we're discovering, it actually does matter. This kind of immorality has a huge effect on people. I've been reading a book right now by John Mark Comer, and he talks about the sexual revolution. First, the one that took place in the 60s, but there's another one taking place right now you may not know about. And here's what he says. Amid the revolution, the questions nobody seems to even be asking are, is this making us better people, more loving people, or even happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our, quote, liberation? Nobody is really even asking these questions, less, much less making a serious attempt to research the data. It's just assumed. But consider a few data points from research. Happiness levels have been in decline in the U.S. since, interestingly, the 60s. While we know that correlation is not causation, you have to admit that it's an interesting coincidence. Or that those who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to marry, are more likely to get a divorce if they do, and often develop long-term trust issues. Or the research on oxytocin and vasopressin, the two chemicals released by our body during sex that brings our attachment system online and cause us to bond to another person. It seems that the more sexual partners you have, the less capacity your body has for intimacy. Or that sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy for those who identify as transgender do not benefit their emotional health, which is the main rationale behind them. Or the fact that porn is becoming increasingly violent, misogynistic, and cruel, and is now a multi-billion dollar industry intentionally targeting children. 
Never mind that sexual abuse and sexual assault are getting worse, not better. Statistically, one out of every four women will experience sexual violence at some point in their lives. Good grief. Never mind that rape culture is a raging problem, even on the most liberal progressive campuses of elite universities. These facts are conveniently left out of the discussion if there even is a discussion. I'm a pastor in a city with no sexual boundaries. I deal with the fallout of Woodstock on a regular basis. I'm not angry. I'm sad. I care about the damage of people's souls, especially the vulnerable. As a pastor, I'll just take one issue here. Pornography. If you don't think pornography is hurting others, think again. The amount of marriages, the amount of wives that are hurting through this, it affects children as well. Bottom line, sexual immorality isn't just about you. It has an effect on everyone, but that's not the only consequence. Once again, as he's done in every part of this letter, Paul reminds us there's gonna be also a day when Jesus returns and we're gonna stand before him and we cannot hide our sin from him, it will be exposed right there and we will be judged. We will be rewarded or we won't be. There's consequences to our sins. So if you're falling on your notes, sexual sin hurts others and has eternal consequences. Paul would write in Galatians, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And with this in mind, he sort of sums this all up in verse seven. Can we read it out loud together? For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. This isn't me saying this. This isn't Paul saying this even. This is under the authority of Jesus Christ. You cannot be sexually immoral and holy. You can't please God with your life and have a bunch of sin you're not willing to repent of. It's one or the other. Once again, I simply want to bring us back though. Sex is a good thing, right? God is not a cosmic killjoy. The reason this is here in the word of God is to protect us and because he really does want us to thrive. Let's read Psalm 19, 11 out loud here on the screen. It says, by your word is your servant warned and by keeping it, there is much reward. Do you believe that? It's the same question I've been asking this whole morning. God wants us to thrive in life and he knows in the area of sex, it's best done in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. He's given us a new life like my kidney. And he says, will you trust? This is the best way to take care of your new life. You either believe that or you don't. Now, friends, obviously, just based on the quietness of this room right now, this is a hard message. And I know there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. It's a topic that has a lot of hurt behind it, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, perhaps. And I possibly can't cover everything. But listen, if you've stumbled or struggled in this issue, and let me be the first to say, who of us haven't? We must not give up hope. Because as we're learning in this letter, we are a people of hope. We have hope. Remember, hope isn't just like wishful thinking. It's an assurance of things. And here's what I can assure you of. We can have hope that the grace of God is bigger than any sexual sin. We can have hope that Jesus provides forgiveness and new mercies every single day. I don't know where I'd be without his new mercies. We have all sinned. We've all wronged somebody in this area. We've all been disobedient, but here's the good news. You don't have to wait until Jesus returns to deal with it. You can do it right here, right now. 
We're told another promise of the Bible is that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're on your notes, God's grace is greater than any sexual sin, period. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, especially with this issue, is found in Joel 2.25. I have it on the screen. It says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Now, we don't have locusts here, not often at least. What do locusts do? They rampage. They eat and destroy everything in their path. And so many people who have given in to sexual temptation feel like their lives have been completely destroyed. There's nothing less for them. They live in regret. And I would just say to you the same thing God would say to you. He can restore the years the locust has eaten. He can lead us into the right relationships. Don't live in regret. Don't live in the past. Don't let the locusts keep reminding you of their destruction. As a person of hope, you are a new person in Christ Jesus. I don't want to just talk about this and then leave everybody hanging. So something we're really passionate about, if this is an area where you just need some follow-up, you need some encouragement, you need to talk to somebody, you need a mentor, you don't have to do it right now, but all you got to do is text the word TALK to 217-546-4818. That's the main number of our church. We know that this issue brings with it a lot of hurt and pain And we don't want to just speak truth. We want to be people who live in grace and truth. So if you need that, it's available for you. But here we go as we close. We're standing at a fork in the road today. On the path is the path of immorality. On the left, it's the wide path. It's the path of the world. On the right is the path of sanctification, being set apart by God in this area, following the spirit, living in a way that honors him with your whole being. This path, listen, promises some pretty good stuff. No regrets. No looking over your shoulder, wondering if somebody's going to find out. No deep shame, no lingering guilt, no hypocrisy. Your obedience will in turn become greater and greater confidence, and you will be transformed more and more into the person of Jesus, thriving and living the life he wants you to live. That's the path God's word sets before us this morning. The choice is ours. So I'm going to ask you the same question I've asked four times in this message as we close, if you're following on your notes. Will I trust that God's way of sexuality really is the best way? Can we pray? Oh, Lord, I'll just confess to you. I wish you asked somebody else to talk about this. And yet this is not my word, it's your word. And we trust that your word is an anchor. We trust that your word is the way to thrive in life. We trust that you want what is best for us. So we repent if we need to repent. We confess if we need to confess. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your mercies are new for us today. You can take the years the locust has destroyed and restore them. I'm asking you to do that. We're asking you to do that. We thank you for the new life you've given us in Jesus. Forgive us when we don't treat it the way you ask us to 
when we don't live in gratitude. Please help us to be people who trust and believe and obey that you really do want what is best for us, that you want us to thrive, that you want what Jesus promised, that we could live the abundant life. We pray as we step out into this culture that worships sex, that we would be set apart and that we could be an example and a model not for our sake, so we get accolades, so people could see Jesus in us and through us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.